Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is a very special emergency culture episode of The Guilty Feminist, and it's about the English National Opera. Now, some of you may be going, oh, isn't that like a little bit rarefied? Aren't there things we should be more worried about at the moment? Isn't that something that's quite elite as it is? And uh, if you're thinking that, I absolutely hear you. But the reason I wanted to do this is because I feel passionately about the way the arts are being cut. I also feel passionately about the way the NHS is being cut, and we're also doing episodes on that. Obviously, that's the most important thing. Obviously, there are other very, very important things. But the arts, where we go to hear story, feel story, think about the way that the world works and our place in it is important. And the government currently in the UK, and probably wherever you're living, if you're not living in the UK, is slashing funding to the arts. And the reason I think the ENO matters so much is it's the one opera company that really reaches out, has fully free tickets. Any seat in the house can be free if you're under 21 to try and get a new generation of people into the opera. Um, it has programs that work with the NHS regarding breathing and well-being, and it also is in English and makes every show accessible. And they really think about the shows they do. It's the only opera company in the country with a female artistic director doing shows like The Handmaid. Maid's Tale. So I come to this with the view that the arts are being defunded in a quite a scary way because, and this is no shade to any individual working at the Arts uh, Council, by the way, I know they're under enormous pressure to make enormous cuts. It is shade to our government and our Minister for the Arts, who seems to be making some rather scary decisions. This is the only opera company its explicit remit is accessibility, is diversity in casting, is drawing in a more diverse and a younger audience. And the government gave this company 24 hours notice 
that they would have to move their whole operation, including every single person who works for them, whether that be the person that fits the wigs, that's the person that paints the sets, whether that be young, up-and-coming, working-class opera singers who have been trained explicitly at the ENO and have become world-class singers, that they've got to shift all of their families up to Manchester in 20 weeks and some of them have families that go to school here and they're caring for their mums here and they're all sorts going on in 20 weeks. And this seems to me to be a move to go, oh, well, if you can't do it, it's just that you didn't want to move to Manchester and that you hate the regions. And that's not what's going on uh, at all, at all, at all. And you're going to hear that in this interview. So even if you're thinking, oh God, I don't really care about opera, it's not really my thing. I'd really urge you to listen to this interview because it speaks more widely about what's going on with the arts. If you like any arts at all, um, then if you like if you like story at all, you'll be interested because it'll give you an insight into what's going on in the arts. So please stick with us um, because there's so much insightful content in this podcast today. Please welcome to the Guilty Feminist Culture Emergency episode, Stuart Murphy, the ENO's Chief Executive Officer, and Soraya Maffey, a Lancashire-born soprano who graduated from the Royal College of Music and is a former ENO Harwood artist. Hi. Hi, yeah. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's a delight. So first of all, Stuart Murphy, ENO's CEO. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what is happening and why? So every three years, the Arts Council decide who they give their next three years of funding to. And um, they decided last Friday that instead of continuing our funding of 12 and a half million a year, roughly, they're removing all funding. They said they'd give us some funding so long as we move out of London. And it was a total shock. They gave us to April uh, to continue our funding. And then in April, it totally stops. And we are totally bamboozled and shocked. Um, and, you know, through the past four years, every fortnight, they give us a report on how we're doing and it's minuted. And they've been saying to us continually for four and a half years, you're doing brilliantly. You're getting really diverse audiences. One in five of your singers are diverse. One in seven of your audience are under 35. Your average ticket is 60 quid, not 200 quid like at the Royal Opera House. So you're doing exactly what we want. And then out of nowhere, they said, we're going to remove all funding unless you move out of London. I've read that they want you to move to Manchester, which you know could be fine, but something like that would take years of planning and you know creating an audience up there. You'd have to work with Opera North to make sure you weren't nicking their audience, but you're working together. You'd have to find the right space, but also you'd have to relocate a hell of a lot of staff who, you know, presumably some of them got partners who've got jobs in London, their kids are in school. Um, they can't just move up to Manchester in 20 weeks. Like when the BBC moved a lot of their operations up to the Salford, that was a big, well-planned, well-timed operation. And it was still difficult for people, but it happened because there was time. How are they expecting you to do this move? Did they give you any more notice than this? Or like, what was the notice period? So they gave us 24 hours notice before it went public. 24 um, hours? Was there a yeah. talk of this before or no? no? No, absolutely not. Not only that, what? Deborah, six months before we, we phoned them and said, 
do you want us to suggest we move out of London? We don't want to move out of London. You tell us we're doing brilliantly. We think we're doing really well. Do you want us to move out? And they said, no, 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 no. We need you in London. We need you to stay in London and level up from out of London. So do all the things you do with Ian O'Breeze and the NHS, all the stuff you do in schools, 165,000 people interact with our learning and participation right across the country. Do that from London. So we were like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll stay in London. We'll ramp up everywhere. You know, I'm from Leeds. So it used to really wind me up when I was a kid watching London organisations or people in my position talk about how all art had to be in London and the regions were some kind of backwater that, you know, where art just didn't exist. It used to really wind me up. So I've always taken it really, really seriously at the ENO. And then when I ran BBC Three and Sky Atlantic, all the stuff I did was always outside the M25. So they're speaking to a proper convert. So it's not that I've got a problem at all doing stuff out of London. It's that there are specific things about opera that need a massive population like London. For instance, fundraising. You know, we raise three million a year and you can do that in a city of nine million. Obviously, if you go to a city a quarter of the size, you're not going to get three million a year. It's going to be harder. Well, especially with the cost of living crisis and, you know, everything that's happening in this country right now and all the carts. It's not really a great time to be setting up in a new area and then expecting that area to support you financially in an unprepared way. Like I just think all of this stuff can be done, but it just takes massive amount of time and planning and structure, infrastructure to make it work. I mean, if they said to you, look, we'll give you the funding, but you need to take a certain number of productions on tour around the country or workshops around the country, would that be more in line with something you're interested in doing? Because I feel like I just also think there are Northerners who are like, I don't just want everything to be in Manchester either. Like it's yeah, Manchester yeah. isn't, is, I mean, I'm sure people would be thrilled if you came to Manchester. I'm not saying there wouldn't be um, huge support for you there. I'm sure there would be, but it's a quite London-y thing to do to go Manchester, that's up North, you know, and, and just go, let's not think anything more about it without going, well, hold on. Do Manchester want this imposed upon them? Is that going to work for Opera North? How is this all going to work? Is this something we can build towards and and work with Manchester? I also worry that Manchester's going to go, so you're just going to throw a bit of London on us. You're not going to cultivate local Manchester opera singers, local Manchester directors, local Manchester technicians. You're not going to cultivate us. You are going to lift up a bit of London and bang it down. I don't know that there is going to be the support. There might be, but you'd have to consult people in the north and not just say in April this is going to happen. I think that's what you do, isn't it, surely? Just to be really basic, you'd firstly do an appraisal, work out who doesn't get opera in Britain is the first thing, Mm -hmm. the very first thing you do. That hasn't happened at the Arts Council for 19 years. So the plan of where opera goes happened 19 years ago at the Arts Council, hasn't happened since. So firstly, look at at the map and, and speak to people. Secondly, speak to the experts, the eight opera heads in Britain. We got we all got together last week and none of us have been consulted. So Opera North were furious. Glyndebourne, who do an amazing tour, um, they've had half their funding cut uh, for the touring. Welsh National Opera, they've had their touring funding cut. 
So you're like, okay, well, that's kind of inconsistent. I think the third thing you do is you, if you land on a place like Manchester, and I used to live in Manchester, love Manchester, you speak to the people where at the venue. So we said, have you spoken to John McGrath at the factory? He went, no. They said, have you spoken to Andy Burnham, the mayor of Manchester? He went, oh, no, no, no. He said, have you spoken to Opera North? And he went, no, 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 we haven't. I was like, God, so you don't even have a strategy. You haven't asked anyone. You haven't consulted the experts. You don't have a plan. And then what, what really, really infuriates me is they're saying to whoever gets the ENO, you're going to get it on a third of the budget. So mm. we're not even going to fund London version, you're going to get a slimmed down version because you're northerners. <laughs> and you know, it's like, give them. You're lucky to get anything. So you're going to get a diet ENO. Um, exactly. I just, it's really, really patronizing. It's insulting. It. It's really, really insulting. And I mean, I would love to see the ENO keep all of its incredible work that it's doing in London to make opera more accessible and more affordable. And, you know, the fact that it is the operas are in English for a start makes it more accessible. But it is a place that works all the time on accessibility and diversity and inclusion. And I feel like I'd love to see that in Manchester or Leeds or, or you oh, know, North Newcastle or wherever as well or, you know, in concert with. But I would love to see that be grown locally, collegiately, rather than just sort of everyone's suddenly got to move house. It's such a strange thing. Um, Soraya, can you tell me what it is that you love about working with the ENO? So my kind of one of my first big contracts out of um, music college was at ENO. Um, and the casting directors at the time actually came in to the Royal College of Music where I was still a student and they heard me and they thought Mike Lee would really like me for a role in Pirates of Penzance. So I actually left college early because I started getting offered this work. And after that first contract and getting to know me and seeing how I worked, they asked me if I would join the Howard Artist Scheme, which is a young artist scheme, essentially, for opera singers. And I was on the scheme for eight years. So that sounds a bit crazy. And for people who maybe aren't familiar with opera, um, it's a long old process developing your voice as an opera singer. A lot of people spend about eight years in conservatoires and then you're a young singer kind of any time up to about 32, 34, really. And that's when you start to kind of reach the prime part of your voice. And ENO, for that whole period, basically supported me in so many ways. Financially, they supported me. And during COVID, when COVID hit, we were actually given a tax-free bursary each month as like a small salary mm. to tide us over, which as young artists during that emergency um, was an absolute lifeline. Um, we were also given access to performance therapists and coaches. And um, sadly, I lost my dad whilst I was a Howard artist. Um, oh. He um, had leukemia and I was doing two operas at the time when dad was really sick. And I was given just basically a, a therapist on tap by ENO to wow. support me and keep me going on stage. You know, I had to keep earning because we don't go on stage as a singer. We don't earn. So they really kept me going and supported me and held my hand through all of that and afterwards as well. And when I worked with other companies, they still provided me access to music coaches to learn roles for other companies as well. And they've basically given me a platform, to, which has led to me having an international career, working in America, working in Europe, singing lead roles everywhere. Um, so I'm hugely in debt to ENO for my entire career, really. And I'm still in touch with the company to this day. Um, I had work in the diary 
um, in 2024, a new production, a key role for me. It was going to be my first time. Now all that's completely up in the air, um, of course. Now people might hear I am from Manchester. I was born in Bury, um, and I came across the arts through school. I um, had an amazing music teacher and I am a huge advocate of Manchester and I would love for Manchester selfishly to have an opera company. I could work from home. Um, I can't work from home if I'm opera north because the motorway is just horrendous um, from Manchester to Leeds. But to just uproot a company that's got a huge following and is doing phenomenal things for that city and plonk it in Manchester makes no sense to me. Manchester has a really strong cultural identity and I've always I've always identified as a Mancunian rather than an English person. And it's something we would want to cultivate ourselves. You know, we have a huge live music scene. We've got amazing bands and, of course, amazing football. And we know who we are, Mancunians. And we also hate being just kind of told Northerners, like, you know, oh, you've got opera in Salford. Well, Salford's a different city, you know, like these are two different things. We would love to have our own place that felt like ours. And like you said, you know, Northern musicians, potentially, we've got amazing orchestras up here that we might want to use. So to displace the ENO orchestra, which is also a fabric of the city in its own right, separate to the singers, just makes no sense. And I've grown with this company with the people who do our wigs the dresses who come and get us into our corsets you know we're, it's a real family and if you were moving your family from London to Manchester you would take more than six months to make mm -hmm. that decision and put mm -hmm. the things in place so to move an entire company it just mm -hmm. I, I really just don't understand how this has come to pass exactly Sarah and it's not just the dresses and the the makeup artists and the the set designers and all of those people it's their families. It's their yeah, kids. Exactly. It's their, oh, well, I'm caring for my elderly mom. Can I just uproot her and take her to Manchester? I was like, where are the, where's everyone going to live? And then how's mm. Manchester feel about that? So all of the people there that are going, great, the ENO's coming here. I can apply for a job. No, you can't because they're just shifting a bunch of Londoners up. It is so badly thought out. So it's not that anybody's saying we don't think Manchester deserves the ENO or Manchester deserves its own opera company or its own branch of the ENO. And it's not that anyone's saying there is no plan in which the ENO couldn't relocate if all of the strategy was done and the research was done and the building was done and the, you know, the the marketing was done and, and you know, it was done well. It's saying you can't, as you say, if you had a family with a couple of teenagers and a couple of little kids who all had to be put into schools and say goodbye to their friends and everything, that would be a long-term thing. You'd have to go, well, we reckon we can do it in two years if we get all the balls in order and we find the right house and all of that. So to move a company is literally impossible. Do you think there is a part of them going... Instead of just killing it off, we're going to say, oh, well, we offered to get, take them up north. And if you can't make it work, then they go, it's not our fault. Do you think that's what's going on? I mean, for me, I, it did cross my mind, you know, in the press would say, because we were, we were like, we just don't get it. We've done everything you asked us to do. At our end of term report card, if you like, you said, yeah, it's brilliant. And then you removed the money. So it's, it's just illogical. I, I don't get it. And then in one of the press statements, the Arts Council said um, it's up to them, for them to decide their future. That's like saying, we're going to move you out of your house and give you a tent. But it's your decision what mm. type of, where you want to live, how you want to live. And it's, 
yeah, it's infuriating. Um, I mean, as you say, all those things, we can definitely do it. Give us time, give us proper resource so we can create something with a local community and local city that makes sense for that space and do all the stuff we've been doing until now. You know what? What I love about the ENO is we don't just do kind of big opera in a coliseum, which I know you've been to lots of times, Deborah. And, you know, it's an amazing space, biggest theatre in the West End, really beautiful from 1904. And it's so massive, we can give away 10% of our tickets for a tenner, free if you're under 21, any seat in the house. So you can do loads of amazing things in it. But... It's not just about what we do in the building. We do loads of other really inventive stuff. So, for instance, about a month ago, we did a performance at um, a print, an old Printworks building called Printworks in the East End. And we got Anthony Roth Costanzo, a guy with an amazingly high voice, singing a piece of music that was part Philip Glass American opera, part Handel. We got the principal designer from Prada to design the outfits. We got a beatboxer. We got a bunch of ballerinas. And it was a bit like punch drunk meets opera meets dance. And so you walked around a kind of immersive piece of art, if you like, totally nuts, and people loved it. And, you know, when you're funded by the taxpayer, it's similar to being at the BBC. You can take enormous creative risks and push art further forward and try stuff or you know at the crazy end we took the next series of um tiger king we put it to the music of carmen and we put it on tiktok and 17 million people looked at it so that might not be high-end opera that the royal opera house does but to your standard teenager like you know i've got two of them they might have come across opera for the first time with their guard down and just thought, you know what, that's a different type of music I've heard and start a journey that might continue for the rest of their lives. Uh, that's what I love about the ENO. It's not just a standard opera company. It never has been. It does, you know, inventive shit in loads of different forms, different sizes, mm. to loads and loads of different audiences. We're already doing mm. what to do. I mean, the crazy thing I saw Darren Henley had put about doing operas in car parks I was literally part of the first ever drive-through opera in the world doing the Lab OM that ENO produced during COVID. And I was one of the only people working during COVID because English National Opera were doing inventive things like that. And that's what baffles me. And also, it is wonderful to present opera in many different ways. But for me, as a, a young girl who had, you know, working class background, who'd never really, you know, been given the opportunity to experience these kinds of things, it wasn't part of the fabric of my life. It was going to see Lab OM through my school, Opera North, and hearing the big live orchestra, the big sets, the amazing singers live in the theatre, that was what won me over. And I really don't like the narrative that if you're from outside of London, you shouldn't see Grand Opera, you shouldn't experience that. You know, regional should be, you know, brought down to a certain level that maybe you can understand. I think we're really... It's really patronising to an audience and it takes away that's that essence of what opera is. And there's a reason why it's been so successful for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, and to take away the incredible singers, the incredible live audience, it's not opera anymore. It's something completely different, which is wonderful and exciting. But the, the opera itself is constantly changing because we have new composers, we have new kinds of voices, we have new theatres. But the actual art form itself it's not about being protected. It's about just staying true to what it is. 
And to take it actually out of theatres and say, we don't want opera in theatres anymore, makes no sense. That's what they were built for. Mm. And yeah, a theatre like the Coliseum, it deserves that that big sound. So what you're doing is you're t- coming at it from all of these different places that a young person who, when you were growing up, Soraya, might have got to go through schools, maybe now because of so much funding being stripped away, isn't getting mm-hmm. that chance. And so, well, how do we get in through TikTok with a sort of Tiger King angle, but make people go, oh, wow, this is an incredible sound. And and we all know we go down those wormholes on YouTube where we go, well, what is, you know, if you're a kid who, you know, it's not part of the fabric of your life, go, who's Handel then? Or who's, you know, uh, who's Puccini? Oh, this is really beautiful. Oh, I love this, this story. You know, and a friend of mine recently, who's a black, trans, uh, northern working class person, and a performer said to me, seeing La Boheme was a saviour to them because they said they saw it when they were like on universal credit, feeling really, really disenfranchised and said, oh no, but I'm an artist, I'm living the bohemian life. And operas like that can really connect with you in a way. I just went to see a very, very beautiful, I was very, very lucky to get invited to see really beautiful opera at the Royal Opera House, the La Boheme, that was absolutely stunning. And it does, it, it can hit you deeply inside, whether or not you're raised on opera or not. I don't think I ever went to the opera as a kid, but it, sometimes that story can just speak to you in a moment. And as you say, why does it need to be reduced? Look, unless you're Italian or German and you've just stepped out of a time machine, a lot of those operas are a step away from all of us. You know, it, mm. it, it, it it's a bit archaic and grand for everybody, but the reason it survived is the same reason Shakespeare survived. There's something universal about it and something magnificent about it and something that can really touch you. And I just get upset that in this country we have had such a strong tradition of the arts. It's it's the one thing, you know, Thatcher closed so much of what we make in this country and what we do and what we can be proud of. And one thing we can still be proud of and still be world-class at is the arts. And people come to London from all over the world to see this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's not just the, you know, they're stripping of resources. It's the Donmar. It's all sorts of places where they're going, we don't really need this anymore. And I'm like, are we just going to become some kind of tax haven for, mm-hmm. you know, is it? are we only going to be known for banks quite soon? They are just stripping away what's wonderful about our community. And again, I would love it to be in Manchester. I'd love the ENO. I'd love every city in this country to have a branch of the ENO. It's a wonderful, joyful, gorgeous, playful thing. What I love about the ENO more than other, you know, I love the Royal Opera House for grandness and majesty and the, you know, authenticity of the original language. But I love the ENO for its playfulness. You know, you go along to the ENO and there's always jokes you know, I saw amazing Fela McDermott uh, did Cozy Ventuti oh, there. I was in it. I was in were it. you? Oh, God, that was such <laughs> yeah. a fun show. But there were gags in the overture, you know, people coming out yeah. with signs. And we were getting, you know, you were getting laughs in the overture. And you're just like, mm-hmm. this is fun. It makes it accessible. It makes it playful and naughty. And, and it's just joyful, absolutely joyful. So I... I I mean, I went to, you know, when I first got to London, I was a Jehovah's Witness. I felt very disenfranchised. I was very lonely. And I used to go on my own after work. I'll admit something to you. I 
if the if it wasn't full, I would sneak in in the interval. I don't. I'm not recommending people do that, but <laughs> it was the only way I could afford it because I was temping. I had. I was. I'd been a Jehovah's Witness pioneer where you're not allowed to earn any money beyond you know two days a week working in a shop, and then you know you have to knock on doors for free the rest of the week. So I was so broke and so disenfranchised from myself, my own life, my body, my everything. I was a sort of hollowed out human being, and you. I would sometimes sneak into the you know and sit there sort of for the second and third act. Then if it was really, really good, I would then save up to go and see the first act. And, you know, it felt like a building. And I would not dare do that at the Royal Opera House, but it felt like a building where you could sort of, <laughs> the worst case scenario, they'd go, do you have a ticket? No, well, maybe, you know. Do you know you can get £10 tickets? Uh, the, <laughs> you know, it, it it is, please don't start sneaking in. But uh, that was a different time. But I, <laughs> I, uh, I do feel like there is an accessibility there. When we do surveys at the ENO, we score off the scale for friendliness. And I love that, you know, because I'm same as Soraya. I grew up in a working class family in Leeds. It was, it was never in our kind of consideration set we'd go to opera or theatre. I went to comprehensive and would go on school trips to the theatre, but it wasn't a world that we were familiar with. If we went there, we'd have to dress up because you kind of honour the moment. We'd never dream of going in jeans and T-shirt because that was sort of rude. It's like going to church in you know jeans and T-shirt. So it was an event, a really big deal. And you got in, and the moment you got in, it's like you were in kind of sacred ground. You know, the building was amazing. The sort of grammar of the event was amazing. Trying to get an ice cream, which, you know, if you were a poor kid, you couldn't get. So you just sort of sat there with your packed lunch. It, it was a magical, amazing thing. And one of the things I love about the ENO is, is free tickets from the 21s and seeing kids come in who are just gobsmacked. And so some ways, you know, one way of getting kids into, or anyone into opera is through our cheap tickets. Another is through crazy stuff like TikTok. Another is getting us out there, you know, in a driving way. Another is this ENO Breathe thing we do in 85 NHS hospitals. So if you've had COVID, go to your GP. They can prescribe you totally for free the ENO Breathe program that we do. And you get on a Zoom with 12 strangers. One of our teachers teaches you how to sing opera and do breathing that Soraya will be amazing at, that I'll be crap at. They teach you how to do it over 12 weeks. And it was peer-reviewed in the Lancet Medical Journal to scientifically improve people's breathing confidence. Unbelievable that we've done it. We fund it. NHS doesn't fund it. And, you know, over 2,000 people have done it. And, you know, you sort of think that's another way to get people into the art form. Another really obvious thing we do is inviting well-known people like you, Deborah, and others, just so that it gets on other people's radar who might not ever encounter sort of an opera blog. But um, I love that. You know, it's kind of mm. sprawling missionary view of let's get this amazing art form out there in the most informal, relaxed, unpretentious way as possible. Because um, when people have got the bug, it, it's sort of with you for life, you know. And can I ask, Stuart, in case people are sitting at home thinking, well, can't you just fund it through ticket sales? Why do you need extra help from the Arts Council? What's the answer to that? Yeah, so there's a version of opera that you can. So Glyndebourne, for instance, doesn't get any funding from the government. Average ticket is about 350 quid. It's got a really small orchestra, um, a small chorus. Those are the permanent singers. And It, it only happens- gets funding to tour so that to take it out, right. to, so that they make sure they take it to the regions, but they don't get any funding. Although that's being cut as well, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Right, yeah but but if you want to go to Glindbourne, it's a very expensive ticket and it's a fancy experience. And fancy and experience. and yeah. 
you know, it can be lovely to do, 100% lovely to do if you can afford it. But the ENO has a remit to be a public service to a certain extent. Yeah, exactly. So what, so what we do is we take a big chunk of the public money and subsidise tickets. So instead of tickets being 250 quid, they're 60 quid. But at the cheapest, they're free for under 21s. Another thing we do, take a big chunk of money and back singers. So we get the equivalent of the Billy Elliots of opera, brilliant, gifted people who aren't rich. We help fund them so they can have a career that works and get them onto the international stage like Soraya. And and we do that for the benefit of, of the opera community. So we're like the gateway opera house. Um, we also take a chunk of money, for instance, four million a year and fund the Coliseum, which is a huge, expensive building. Um, we take a chunk of money and we back singers who are black, Asian and from other ethnic minorities. So it's not just white singers who dominate the opera scene. So we find people who are either gospel singers, jazz singers, train them how to sing opera. And the dean can tell you her story, which is very much this, and then get them into the opera world. So we we use the public subsidy for the benefit of of opera, not just blowing a whole load of money on massive costumes, for instance. It's got and you cast majority British singers as well. Yeah, 18, you know, and which is, which is fantastic. And you know, British singers and British trained singers are internationally renowned. You go to work after you say you've been training at ENO, and I was in America, and people are saying, "Oh my gosh, where did you train? Like your your technique is so solid, and you know, you really understand the style of Mozart and Handel, and it's really flexible." And that is something that we, you know, singers who've gone through the Howard Artist Program. It's constantly commented on, you know, Brit- British singers, British trained singers coming through ENO. But it fills you up, doesn't it? It's sort of like you hear this sort of stuff and you feel like we're, we're, art is important. How we feel about being human is important. The stories mm. we tell are important. Who gets to tell those stories are important. Who gets to be on stage and see themselves on stage is important. All of this is important stuff. It's mm. the fabric of life. You know, it's yeah. it's it's how we feel about ourselves in the world. It's how we process grief. It's how we process love. All of those things. And to just strip it away and say to just this ancient tradition and to just go, you know, ah, it's not important anymore. What's important is, I don't know, making rich people richer, I guess, is is mm. what the government's doing. And I don't blame like the individuals at the Arts Council who are probably being stretched themselves. I'm not having a go at individuals at the Arts Council, but I'm saying this is obviously coming from our government who is not placing an importance on these things. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Is there a way you can afford to stay open if you were to say, okay, well, we can't afford now to, you know, make this an accessible building in the same way that we have by investing in young singers coming up, by having these free tickets and £10 tickets, um, could you afford to stay open without taking any money from the Arts Council or not because it's such a short notice thing? We could, but but the whole thing changes. So straight away, instead of 60 quid tickets, tickets are 250 quid. So we're in the same territory as the Royal Opera House. Instead of British trained singers or British singers would hire in international singers who sing in original language. So they'd come in, They people sometimes call it um, uh, park and bark. They fly in, park themselves on the stage, bark out the singing and then clear off. Because um, that's where most money is to be made. Tourists, rich people in London. So straight away you have international singers, 200, 250 quid ticket. You don't do any of the outreach so the 165,000 people a year who get our outreach, that stops. Ian O'Breathe with NHS, totally stops. Free tickets for under 21s, 100% stops. And we'd probably just do the standard set of operas, which is the kind of big, big 13 operas that you see on every single international opera house. And it's boring. You know, it's really, really boring. And every someone else, you know, it's boring because you can get that around Europe, but also the Royal Opera House do that brilliantly. And so straight away, we're over-catering for the same metropolitan, very rich audience and tourists. And, you know, when Vienna have three opera houses or Paris do or Berlin does, why why are we just going to have one just for rich people? It, it, it's not That's not why we're here. We're better than that. Do you think there's any possibility of being funded by, you know, corporate institutions or people, you know, instead of going, we've got to save the ENO? It's not that much money for big banks to come in and, and support you with. Is that possible? It's possible. I mean, you know, although there's been a kind of bit of a narrative in the papers recently that why should banks use shareholders' money on, you know, sponsoring particular organisations? So there's been a bit of a kickback from sponsors to do that. It's quite a kind of complicated argument, I guess. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's possible. I just I mean, think... for the same reason, though, that government should, like, you're constantly making billions by being in London and giving your, all your bankers bonuses. Can't you contribute something back to your community, I think, is the answer to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd love it. I mean, I, th- I think the, the biggest thing we've got in our favour is we started a petition uh, about four days ago, and it's I think it's got 50,000 signatories, which is massive, I think people assumed it get 5,000 people signing it because it's opera. It's got 50,000. It's got endorsements from 
right across the kind of political spectrum from lots of ages, from people who are really well known to not, people who are loaded to people who don't have any money. And you can see it's on change.org. I'd love people to sign it. And I think that will just continue ramping up. I'm super grateful you're doing this. I think there's going to be a lot more radio, podcast, TV over the next fortnight or so. And I think that's it's definitely a power of the people thing. Arts Council have made this decision. It's for them to sort out the crisis they've induced. And they can absolutely do a U-turn. I don't care how they do it. Speak to other government departments, levelling up, education, health or DCMS. But overturn it. They're about to decimate something that's been in Britain for 100 years and is working brilliantly. And they're about to take an axe to it. And it's going to be on their epitaph that they ruined the ENO. Don't do it. Just come back from the brink. Mm. Well, if you are a guilty feminist listening to this who thinks, yeah, it's worth it. So little girls like Soraya who are going to be supported and grow into established world-class opera singers, um, if you are somebody who's like, yeah, I want to support what the ENO is doing and I want it to be, of course we want to tour it around the country, of course we'd love a second home in Manchester or even an only home in Manchester if that was done well and over time and Manchester was allowed to be a base that grew its own talent for it. You know, anything over time is doable. I mean, ideally, I would love to see a second home in Manchester, but I would hate to lose it in London because London's got an enormous population and an enormous population of kids who get to go to this, get to go to opera for free. And it just feels like this would be such a massive, massive loss and certainly a massive loss to kill it off this way. So if you're a guilty feminist listening to this, please sign the petition. Where can they sign the petition? Change.org. Change.org. Um, we'll tweet it out on our socials as well. Um, and I guess you could go to the e socials to see the uh, the petition as well. What's the e socials? Uh, it is uh, eno.org. Oh, you know, we're on E&O. Twitter, Facebook. Yeah. Okay, so just look on Twitter and Twitter and Facebook for the ENO socials. Soraya, is there anything you came to say today that you didn't get to say? Um, one thing that I think would be really relevant for your listeners to know if they don't know is that our artistic director is female and she's the only female artistic director that we've got in the UK. Wow. And Annalise directed um, a wonderful production of The Handmaid's Tale um, earlier this year, which has been nominated for awards. And it's that kind of work that we want to be seeing on stages. You know, it's extremely relevant to what is going on in society and to us, you know, as feminists, to see that work being brought on stage by a woman. She had open conversations about birth, birth trauma, which I experienced. And I wasn't in the opera, but I still had those conversations with Annalise in my workplace. You know, I was breastfeeding whilst I was singing Despina and Cosi Pantotti and Phelan McDermott, Peter Relton, who were the directors in the room, like, bring Miles in if you haven't got any childcare. You know, the the company around me wanted to support me as someone who'd been through the young artist phase with my seven-month-old child and give me work and keep me going. And to have that as a self-employed musician was outstanding. So as a company, they really support women as well. And so I think that's really relevant to your listeners to know that that is the kind of culture within this company. And it's not like that at every music institution. So I just wanted to really support ENO's message in that way as well. Great. Well, um, long live the ENO. We really do hope that this decision is reversed 
and uh, that ideally there's support for a second E&O in Manchester, but that that can be cultivated and homegrown and developed with Northern artists and uh, uh, creatives. It's been an absolute privilege to have you on. Thank you so much for bringing all your heart, your passion, your life experience, your stories and your big, creative, generous spirits to this. We really hope that we can do what we can to try and save the E&O because it's important. Thank you. Thank you so much. And hopefully, if we do, we'll be able to come back and do another Guilty Feminist there next year. Yeah. And then can I say I'm a feminist butt? Yes. Oh, do you want to say you're yes. I'm a feminist butt now? Oh, my God, can I please? Yeah, okay. So, Soraya, what's your I'm a feminist butt? I'm a feminist, but I bought me and my partner his and hers thermos flasks. And if he leaves the house with the pink one and I end up with his black one... It eats me up inside. <laughs> I can't handle it. I can't drink from his. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sarai. It's been a real joy and a privilege to have you on, and we hope this helps. Deborah, I'm so grateful for you doing this. Thanks so much. No, I feel very, very passionately about it, Stuart, and I feel very, very strongly about what you've done with the ENO because I can see the change in it since you've been there. I mean, it's always been an accessible building, but you've done so much to make it truly accessible and make huge strides and I can see the progress that's been made since you've been there and to just have it whipped out uh, I think is heartbreaking so I really do want to help and I you know we do do culture episodes you know quite frequently and I just thought this was a really ideal opportunity Um, I hope that you you what do you think is going to happen or is it can you not say can you say off the record no, no, no. So I think um, we're discussing stuff with the DCMS. Let's see where that goes. We met the Secretary of State, Michelle Donnellan, seems very smart and sensible. I think we'll probably know in three weeks and a lot will depend on how big the petition gets. So okay. I hope they'll come back with a decent budget and a decent time frame. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, listen, I I really have great hope for the ENO. It means a lot to me. I know it means a lot to other people. And I know there's people that have never even stepped into that building that would absolutely love it, that are listening to this and going, what? Can I get a free ticket? Can I get an, a £10 ticket? That's amazing. And that they will yeah. turn up. I'd like to play out now on just uh, a couple of comments from Nadine Benjamin when we recorded an episode at the Coliseum with the ENO and uh, also a little bit of Nadine singing an aria. So let's go out on that. Now, we have a very, very special guest. Our guest today gave up a career in banking to become an opera singer. She is currently singing the role of Musetta in La Boheme here at the Coliseum. Please put your hands together and make an enormous, guilty feminist, woo-hooing, operatic welcome for Nadine Benjamin! So, Nadine... You are currently in La Boheme. I am. Which is exciting. What I think about operas is they're generally uh, the most angelic, soul-enlightening experiences set to the plot of an episode of Two and a Half Men. (laughs) So often, though. So always the comedies. Always the comedies. It's like a really bad sitcom plot. And then the music is like that of angels. You feel like if you don't believe in God for a minute, you do. Um, it's absolutely remarkable. So you are playing Mazetta. I'm playing Mazetta. How yeah. is it coming to this role? 
Um, it's been quite a challenging one, actually. Um, we're talking about patriarchy and how a woman looks on stage. I'm quite sexual on stage. And when I very first started this role, I was covering it at Scottish Opera. And um, I found that there was kind of the stereotype as well. I'm black, obviously. And um, so it looked quite... It was the stereotype of being an exotic woman on stage, plus the sexuality. So actually, I ended up going to, every time I came off stage, going to actually go to therapy, go to coaches, to actually unravel some of the unconscious social systemizing that was going on in my own brain. So I could be free, so I could own my sexuality. I was also brought up in the church. So I just found there was a lot of shame that came up. So I really wanted to unpick all of that, actually. And, you know, I'm now an Ian Harwood artist doing Musetta here. And this beast has unleashed because I've done all this work. And it's a little bit scary because <laughs> I'm realising that I'm a little bit like her in some way. <laughs> yeah, but it's so freeing. I feel like I've, I'm a woman, I'm allowed to be sexy. I'm allowed to be... I'm allowed to flirt, you know. I'm allowed to dress the way I want to, move my body the way I want to. And if I hadn't had the opportunity to actually be involved with this role, I wouldn't have known what I was inhibiting in myself because of the unconscious stuff that is put towards me and because of what is happening for me, myself, that I needed to unravel. That is really interesting mm. because there's something about opera of all the forms of music that comes from such a, well, you have to push from the diaphragm and you, it has to come from such a deep place and it has to sort of encompass all of you. So do you think it's worth feminists learning some, like maybe going for some singing lessons if they have access to that, to learn some opera, to sort of feel some of these things and to push some of these perhaps societally imposed uh, inhibitions off us? Well, I think singing opera takes you to the absolute end of any emotion. And when you sing, they always tell you to take your breath from your vagina. <laughs> yeah, well, she said it. <laughs> it's not from the diaphragm, it's from the vagina. No, it? well, the diaphragm is what makes it work. But when you're thinking of the breath, you have to think of the breath that low down. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Yeah. I did not know this and I'm being educated. <laughs> yes. So... I do think that when your emotions do come up, you are unleashing something in yourself that you didn't know was there just because of the music and where it takes you vocally, where it takes you spiritually and how deep it touches your soul because it is exaggerated emotions. Wow. So pop, it's more from the chest and jazz is more from the stomach and opera's from the vagina. <laughs> Making it, in many ways, the most feminist of all the musical art forms. And I speak I, inclusively when I say, you know, whatever genitals you have, presumably it's from the, the genitals. Yes, yeah. exactly. But you're using your whole body, you know, your whole body has to be engaged for you to actually make this sound that needs no mic. Oh. This sound that needs no mic, that's a good slogan, isn't it? <laughs> this sound that, that needs, needs no mic.
Guilty Feminist is provided exclusively from Acast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.